0: Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Aaron. And to round out our Stroke Awareness Month, um, we are in our last of the series. We thought it would be really nice to have a physical therapist talk to us about all things rehab when it comes to stroke recovery. So today we are fortunate to have Dr. Jenna Tucker. She's a clinical assistant professor at the School of Physical Therapy at Keene University in New Jersey. There she serves as the Neurological Content Coordinator. She is a specialist in neurologic uh, injuries. She's actually certified through ABPTS. Um, Her clinical experience includes inpatient acute rehab for adults um, with neurologic and orthopedic dysfunction, as well as home care for adults with TBI and outpatient rehab for adults with brain injuries. So very well versed. She's authored multiple articles and she's presented at conferences um, she's developed and managed various different clinical programs, and she's an active member for the Brain Injury Alliance of New Jersey. So very well-versed. We're very lucky to have her. Welcome, Jenna.
1: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: Yeah, we feel I'm Excited honored, to be with today. Right? Yeah, we just feel so honored <laughs> to have someone that's so well-versed in all of this. And I know we really haven't spent a lot of time on kind of the general um, stroke realm of rehabilitation. So I think to back up and to just provide some content, let's first talk about what stroke is. You know, I know not all of our listeners have actually suffered a stroke. Um, So let's just talk about, you know, start there.
1: Okay. So I know that um, the primary kind of audience that you guys have targeted in general is brain injury, but what some people don't understand or don't know is that stroke falls within that, uh, within the category of brain injury. So if you go by different schools of thought, different articles that you'll read, um, sometimes the exact terminology is not always consistent. But in general, under the phrase acquired brain injury, you would see a traumatic brain injury is one of the subsets, which I know is um, a big component of what you guys have um, done a lot of episodes on. And then the other subset would be non-traumatic brain injury. And within that category, we uh, would include things like an anoxic brain injury. So if you have somebody who suffers a heart attack and they have uh, their brain is deprived of oxygen for some period of time, that would be an acquired brain injury, but non-traumatic. There's no direct impact to the head of the brain. Um, and stroke actually falls also within that non-traumatic brain injury subcategory. Um, so there are two types of strokes. There are hemorrhagic strokes where you have some kind of bleed. One of the more common ones you'll hear about are ruptures secondary to an AVM or an arteriovenous malformation. Um, and then the other is an ischemic. And that the ischemic strokes are much more common and prevalent in the type of stroke that you usually hear about. And, um, one of the challenges with ischemic stroke is... That many of them are in many ways preventable. Um, There's a lot of modifiable risk factors, uh, which we'll, I think, talk a little bit about today. Um, And hopefully that education that we can provide to some people can help prevent um, some of these ischemic strokes. But that's kind of the general breakdown of where it falls under brain injury.
0: And I know I always thought that anyone that has a brain hemorrhage has had a stroke, um, that that's considered a stroke. But of course, when I had my brain hemorrhage, they were very careful in saying, you haven't actually experienced a stroke. So I wonder if that's, does it have to do with um, area of like brain tissue damage that decides that, yes, this is a stroke?
1: Um, Yes and no. Some of it has to do with the area that's damaged. Some has to do with what we call the the mechanism of injury and um, kind of what this... (laughs) I think you said sequelae before. Um, What kind of happens to get you there? Um, But um, yeah, and it also, it it kind of depends on on the clinicians you're working with. Sometimes, again, it's semantics and how things Mm. fall under certain categories.
2: Yeah, it's interesting in this world, even with like concussion versus, you know, more severe brain injury where people draw the line. And it seems like there's a whole lot of gray area, no pun intended, referring to. Yeah, cream 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 it. But it does seem like, like, like there's there's like, you know, <laughs> yep. the lines a little blurry sometimes. And sometimes it depends who you're talking to. Yeah,
1: but it's it's very blurry. And um, I actually am doing some research on concussion right now. And one of the challenges is, you know, in the literature and in the clinical world, technically concussion and mild traumatic brain injury are synonymous. But mm. people don't always address it in the same way.
2: Yeah. So. And there's there is an interesting like, uh, I don't want to call it a turf war, but that's the closest thing I can think of. Um, Like if you look at support groups and um, like the subreddits for TBI and stroke, like the way people define what they have based on what their doctors have told them, especially concussion versus more severe TBI, people are like, oh, well, you didn't have a TBI and others, you know, are like, okay, a concussion is a TBI. And it feels like almost like a claiming of territory
1: in a very weird way, but yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it's it's challenging because I think for, for, you know, people with brain injury in general, a lot of the symptoms when they're not so physically visible to other people, they get written off and mm-hmm. concussion falls in that category. Some types of stroke fall in that category. Um, and it, it can be very frustrating. Um, but yeah. yeah, there is a little bit of a turf war. I think it's funny. It's something you can't
2: see. So it's a lot harder to, I think, draw the line. But but that's then, interesting. I mean, I've always been a little bit fascinated with Aaron's um, bleed because it was not technically a stroke. So I, I would love to hear from someday <laughs> someone who has an idea of like where that line really like gets drawn and and, you know, Hopefully you don't feel slighted, Erin.
0: <laughs> no. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, what you said about, um, Jenna, the the different things that are visible versus non-visible. Like, I wonder if they drew yeah. the line with mine because, oh, she's physically fine. I had no, you know, hemiparalysis. I had no paresis anywhere. I had no, you know, aphasia or swallowing issues. It was all cognitive, which is stuff that you can't see and it's harder to define. Yeah. So I wonder if that's kind of where clinicians are looking when they're like, oh, stroke versus non-stroke.
1: Yeah, sometimes it has to do with that clinical presentation and not kind of falling into that stereotypical um, presentation that many people with a quote unquote stroke will uh, present with. Yeah. Um, That That hemiplegia.
2: Would you mind speaking a little to that like sort of typical presentation? I think this is a pretty fascinating episode for both of us because, you know, both of our brain injuries were cognitive and there really weren't too many physical effects for us. So this is new territory. Like we're, we're learning along with our listeners here. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So within the brain, the um, most common artery that you will find, um, a stroke, um, patients having issues with is the middle cerebral artery or the MCA. It's that big one that kind of covers, I'm demonstrating with my hands, but no one can see me, the sides of your head. Um, And within that, um, those two, you'll have usually either, like we said, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. Um, And if it's within the MCA on either side, there's these kind of typical presentations that patients will, will demonstrate. Um, if there is a left MCA, CBA or left MCA stroke, they will present with what we call contralateral hemiplegia or hemipresis, so that weakness on the opposite side of the body, contralateral being opposite side, and then the hemiplegia or hemipresis being that weakness. Um, so they would have right-sided weakness. They would also have, commonly, uh, right-sided sensory loss in some capacity. And then damage on that left side is often is also correlated with uh, speech deficits, speech and language deficits. That's where your like, speech and language centers are housed. Um, on the contrary, if you have an NCA uh, infarct or hemorrhage on the right side, you would have, again, that contralateral uh, hemiparesis or hemiplegia, so that weakness on the left side now, that sensory loss, hemisensory loss also on the left side. But instead mm-hmm. of the damage with um, to the language centers, we'll often develop these uh, called visual spatial deficits and kind of difficulty um, with visual spatial tasks. Um, both sides can develop something called homonymous hemianopsia is the most common visual deficit, but in general, visual de- um, impairments. So that's another common barrier. Um, patients can develop, uh, like you guys were talking about, a, a slew of different cognitive deficits or impairments, um, if there is damage to um, more of the frontal lobe of the brain, which may be what we call an, A- an ACA infarct or hemorrhage, um, you can see more of those, what we call higher order cognitive impairments. So, difficulty with problem solving, and maybe some of the things you guys have, um, you know, I, I, you said that cognitive challenges were amongst some of your symptoms, and um, those are often very, uh, frustrating for patients. In addition to the cognitive changes that you'll see with frontal lobe involvement, uh, there's also a lot of behavioral challenges that can arise. And then if you go more towards maybe a PCA, which is our posterior cerebral artery, then you're going to see a lot more heavy involvement of the visual system. So a lot of visual deficits will present there. Um, You can also have a stroke in the cerebellum, which is one of my fears, the term little brain. Um, (laughs) I love that one. Um, so the cerebellum is kind of your center for coordination, um, coordination, balance, uh, things like that. So when you have damage to that area, you can present with symptoms such as ataxia, which is a lack of coordination or smooth movement, and that can be either in your extremities or in your trunk, um, depending on what part of the cerebellum it may be in. So, you know, there are like we were saying. When it comes to stroke, there can be these kind of stereotypical presentations depending on where the stroke is within the brain. But like with any brain injury, traumatic or non-traumatic, everyone presents differently. There there can just be some trends sometimes. I would say most commonly, um, like I said, NCA strokes are the most common. So that typical um, hemiplegia, hemiparesis. Um, any sensory loss, those are the common presentations you'll see physically. Mm.
0: So is that where the acronym acronym BFAST comes in for all these strokes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you mind speaking to that a little bit just for awareness? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So that acronym is kind of the, um, I don't want to say it was a campaign, but it was a way to really promote awareness of stroke symptoms because it's incredibly crucial if somebody is having a stroke that they have medical t- attention immediately. Um, so, that um, acronym, FAST, FACE stands, uh, sorry, F <laughs> stands for face. So, you'll some t- uh, often see that facial droop. Um, so, you'll see kind of the eyelid maybe droop on one side, the corner of the mouth dr- uh, drop down to the side. Um, a is for arm weakness. So a lot of times the recommendation is if you think you're suspecting someone's having a stroke, you ask them to put their arms directly out in front of them. And if one arm is starting to droop and not able to stay up at the same level as that other arm, that's an indicator of that what we call hemiplegia, that weakness on the one side. Um, S is for speech. So you'll hear often either a slurred speech. Um, or difficulty communicating words. They're not making sense. They're kind of jumbling something along those lines. T is for time, meaning you got to move quickly. Um, so we need to get them um, to an emergency room immediately. If it is a, um, an ischemic stroke, the emergency room can give something called TPA, but it has to be given within a certain number of hours for it to be effective. So that is why that time piece really is so crucial. Um, one of the things I, I often recommend to my students, um, there's a woman named Jill Bolt Taylor. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. She did some talk. Her. She wrote a book. Well, yes. me too. One of my life goals to meet her. Uh-huh. And um, me too. She, she walks you through what it felt like um, when she was having um, that stroke and one of the things she talked about was that difficulty with words. Um, so mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to present as slurred speech. It can also be um, clear speech but incoherent, where the they're just kind of jumbling and nothing makes sense. Mm. Um, so it's important that um, people also understand that it can be either of those kinds. Of
0: things. And I, I've seen recently so, yeah. people adding in the the B and the E. So be fast, um, balance and eyes, because I, you know, some of the times you might not have those like deficits where you hold out your arms and one drops, but your balance is very off. And, um,
1: exactly. And that speaks to what we were just talking about before, where it depends on what part of the brain. So yes, fast kind of encompasses those typical MCA presentations. But if you have something more, if you have a PCA issue, a posterior cerebral artery issue, you're going to see a lot of visual changes. Um, if you have, like we said, the cerebellar issue, you'll see a very um, a lot of apparent potentially balance or coordination. So it's mm-hmm. good to add those on. My guess is originally they were just trying to be, you know, spread the word with as little information as possible. <laughs> uh, but now they're kind
0: of adding yeah, yeah. So as you, you know, I just want to call out again, if you, anyone out there is experiencing any of these types of symptoms, it's very important to get help right away. And if you are cognitively able to, or if your caregiver is able to take note as to when the symptoms start, that's very important in the emergency department for them to determine if they can give you that um, clot buster medication, the TPA. So
1: this PSA hey, brought to you to by
0: Nurse Erin. Right? <laughs> stroke Awareness <laughs> Month. <laughs> just because you've had a stroke doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware of what to watch out for That's if it true. were to happen again. Mm-hmm. So, Jenna, well, you mentioned it. Yeah. I was
1: going to say, Just you said just because you didn't have a stroke doesn't mean you should be aware. And one of the other things that I find very interesting is there's a great article that came out, I believe, the end of last year. Um, talking about how stroke education really is, is very important for the general population. But it's, it's very surprising. There's a lot of research that's being done on patients that have had strokes and are still not really aware or, of the symptoms and or how important it is that they need to call 911 because patients who have had a stroke are very, very high risk to have another one. And so they need to be even more so educated on what those signs and symptoms are, so they know to um, to be able to get that emergency assistance as soon as possible.
2: That's a very interesting point, and one that at some point, like maybe a year ago, I figured out. Like I, um, you know, my brain injury very different. That said, somebody asked me what a subdural hematoma was, and I was like, hmm give me a second here (laughs) because I had to like think really hard, but it made me realize like I really should be better educated about my own brain injury and being able to explain exactly what that was, you know, but also not only for the sake of being able to answer the person who randomly asked me, but also, you know, any brain injury survivor is highly likely to have another brain injury at some point. Um, so I was like, maybe I should just looking into this a little more, but, but I think it it's a good point that like, just because you've had your brain injury, doesn't mean something like that won't happen again. And so it's important to sort of do your diligence in terms of education on what has happened to you.
1: Yeah. And not just for patients themselves, but their family members mm-hmm. and caregivers. I think um, caregivers get very caught up in, understandably. So in the day-to-day, okay, so remember to give the meds and how do I help them get in out of the bathtub and things like that. And, you know, there's, there's only so much every human can take in at any given time. And, and that's a lot of work for caregivers. And so when they also are trying to sit down and learn, okay, what else do I need to be aware of? It's just a lot of information. Um, but it is very important that both patients and their families are, are provided that education and, and that the education's reinforced so that they, they really are aware um, and able to make the that call if they need to.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a really good segue into sort of the rehab part of this, because I think a lot of the stroke caretakers and survivors that I've seen in support groups and other places online, their biggest question is, okay, this has happened to me. How much hope can I have for my rehab? Um, you know, a lot of physical stuff is really hard to pinpoint, you know, what they can expect in terms of recovery. Can you speak a little bit to what you see most frequently in terms of the physical side effects after a stroke and, and what, what the typical approach to um, rehabbing those is?
1: Yeah. That's sure. a big question. So, Sorry. I know. No, it's okay. Um, so one of the, the biggest challenges I always encounter and particularly now, actually, now that I'm teaching a uh, full time, it's a, it's a very big challenge for students and new grads as they come into the the field um, is to field the question when you first meet a patient and their family members, how long is it going to take me to get better? Mm-hmm. How much better am I going to get? Right. Mm-hmm. I get that question constantly. And unfortunately my students, if, if any of them listen to this will laugh when I say it depends, right? That's the famous quote of every physical therapist. It depends. Um, you know, every patient's going to recover differently. Every, every brain injury is every stroke is different. Um, but they're, In my experience, there is always room for improvement. How much? Time will tell, right? And effort will tell. Um, But there's always room for improvement. I think the biggest thing is um, getting off to a good start with a lot of education. So educating patients and their families, like we said, on risk factors, things like that, and getting their general health stabilized. Um, And then educating on reasonable expectations and having patients understand that this is going to take time. It's very frustrating and it's, you know, it can be, it's very overwhelming for them and they want some kind of answer. They, it's, it's very helpful to have some sense of control and grounding. Um, but you kind of have to learn to live with this open-ended, you know, it will, it will just take time, which is tough. Um, the majority of I would say the majority of physical recovery does happen usually in that first year year or two. Um, However, it does not end. It just tends to slow down. But that's really also due to the fact that in the initial phases, usually are when we're going to see the most intense symptoms. And then as your symptoms get better, there's less improvement that's needed. So the less you need to improve, the more it kind of slows down. So that's okay, and educating patients to know that you may see a lot of gains, and you may plateau a bit, and that's okay. That's not a bad indicator. Um, It just means that you're, you know, you're hitting that stage where it, um, it, it, you don't see such intense changes regularly. Um, One of the other big things is education on follow through. So I, in the inpatient setting, I'll see patients anywhere from forty-five minutes, maybe. To an hour and a half, two hours a day, depending on what combination of PTOT and speech they're getting. In the outpatient world, it's more like a half hour to an hour, usually. Um, And that's, you know, a couple days, an inpatient maybe five days a week, six days a week, an outpatient maybe three. Um, And educating patients and their families to follow through um, on everything that you encourage them to work through. Maybe exercises, stretches, positioning, things like that is so crucial. The patient and their families have to understand that they are a big part of the the rehab team. They often look to us as the experts, but they play a huge role. Like it's they and um, making sure they feel very involved in that recovery. Um, Kind of coming back, I think um, talking about reasonable expectations, um, not only in the amount of recovery, but also. One of the things I always encourage my students and new grads to keep in mind is it has to be functional. So if I, I I will never forget. I once had a patient many, many years ago and I asked him the first day I saw him. So what's your goal for therapy? He's like, I want to be a kicker for the 49ers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to need to scale back a little bit. How about (laughs) sitting at the edge of the bed first? Um, And so while I always applaud having, you know, very, very good goals and something to work towards, Um, maybe working with, with people to make sure that they're kind of finding these stepping stones to get to where they want to be and understanding that sometimes it's those small victories that. Um, really make a big difference.
0: Um, I think that's really important just to keep yourself motivated too. If you have this huge lofty goal that's going to take 10, 15, 20, maybe never years to reach, you're going to always feel like you're failing. But if you Mm -hmm. have the little steps um, of what you need to do to get there, then you can actually see those gains. Yeah. I think that's
2: important too. I mean, I I think not just for us brain injury survivors, but as a society, it's an important thing. I mean, like you look at weight loss, are you trying to lose a hundred pounds? Do you look at anything short of a hundred pounds as, you know, a failure? Why not celebrate five pounds by five pounds? And if you lose 75 because you're adding five plus five plus five plus five, that's awesome. That's still a huge progress. You can't count, you know, uh, you know, a shortfall like that as a, as a loss, you know, in my opinion.
1: It's funny you say that, Maya. that's also often the analogy I will give. Ah, that, great minds. You know, if you have, <laughs> right. If you have, you know, like you said, 70 pounds to lose, you're not going to lose the 70 pounds in a week, but mm-hmm. you have to look at those small achievements um, and, and celebrate them. They're, they're really um, it's important to do that yeah. along the way. Like, keep that motivation.
2: There's work behind every pound lost, just like there's, you know, work behind every gain in I think a physical recovery. So small or large.
1: Yeah. 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 And that and the other thing I always educate patients on is like I said, even if you start to slow down and you don't see such big gains um, in such short amount of time, the blade the, the blame, sorry, the brain, <laughs> um, the brain has the ability to change constantly for your entire life. Neuroplasticity is a beautiful thing. And there's there's always room for change to happen. Um, So just sticking with it. And and if something's not working, change it up. I think we often tend to get stuck in the like, I'm going to do this till I get it the way I want it done. But sometimes you need to pivot and maybe try a different strategy. Um, That's one of the things I love, love doing with my patients is... The big goal, you'll hear everybody as soon as they have a stroke in there, you, you walk into their hospital room. What's your goal? I want to walk. It's almost everybody's first goal. I feel so bad. My fellow speech language pathologists will walk in and they're like, yep, the patient told me their goal was to walk. And I had to explain to them, that's not what I was in there. <laughs> um, but that's, they always, every right? Because that's our, that's our source of independence. That's how mm-hmm. we're mobile. That's how we, you know, and it's a huge factor for people. Um. And so I have to often explain to them that it's baby steps, like we said, no pun intended, right? little bit at a time, um, but there's always room to keep improving. And if you feel like you hit a plateau trying to change things up, maybe um, I had a patient many years ago who we were working on gait training, improving his walking, um, and he hit a bit of a plateau and he's really struggling. And so we sat down to chat and I was like, so what's your goal for walking? Like, what do you want to be able to do? Walk around your house, walk around your neighborhood? And he's like, I want to be able to take my dog for a walk. And I was like, how did you not tell me that sooner? So I went down and um, I set up a time for our, um, what we call our CCI dog. So the hospital I'm at had a, um, they have canine assisted therapy trained um, dogs. And we started doing some gait training with the dog on a leash. And it totally was a game changer for him. He really started to make, yeah. And so I think it's really important to always keep that in mind too. I think making victories out of those small gains and knowing when you need to kind of pivot a little bit and yeah. change it up and add new in.
2: I think your point about walking and the relationship to independence is a super important one, because I think we think like these physical things and we tend to ignore the psychological effect that they have. Um, and at one point, I can't remember. I think it must have been in Where's the Mango Princess. One of the yeah. patients was talking I mean, about. It was. Uh, yeah, Holly of mm-hmm. one of our interviewees, recommended it a while back. And I am so glad she did because it was really helpful for me to read at the time that I did. But I, I think at one point, um, the, you know. The author's husband is like keeps diving out of his hospital bed and it's easy to think like, well, that is erratic behavior, but actually it's trying to control something physically in a, in a space where you don't have much control, especially when you're still in a hospital or a rehab center where like everything is being watched over for you and you feel like, you know,
1: you just, yeah, that component is huge. I like the emotional component, I would yeah. say. I one of my big things I've over the years tried to be very, very cognizant of is when I walk into a patient's room or meet them for the first time, I sit down and I just try to chat for a few minutes. And I can't tell you how many of them have said, thank you, for just like seeing me as a person and not just mm-hmm. one thing, like, let's go, come on, we gotta do this, and and just you know, shooting directions at me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I understand I worked in many settings, you know, we have things we need to get done and timelines and lots of patients. And I, I get it. It's not always easy to remember that, but treating patients as, as, people and not just a patient, I think is so crucial and getting people involved and ask, like I said, asking them what their goal is, right? We know as physical therapists, our goal is always to improve mobility as much as possible and functional independence as much as possible. But what does that mean to our patient? Like if I'm working on getting walking them longer and longer and longer distances and they turn around and they're like, I don't care how long I walk. I just want to walk better so I can walk in my house by myself. Like, if that's really their goal and they want to just improve the quality, but for shorter distances, that's what we need to focus on. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Not to say that other things
1: aren't important, but. prioritizing their goals. I think that
2: humanity piece is essential, honestly, because it's so easy in a circumstance like a brain injury to feel like you've had a life stolen from you. Um, And you want to be like, that's always from what I, from the conversations I've had, that always seems to be like the standard is I want the life I had before. I want what I had before. I want to be the person I was before. And so, especially talking to any kind of practitioner who has never seen that person before. I think it's important to recognize it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And Erin, I'm sure you have experienced this too as clinicians. You sometimes have you do have to develop a little bit of tough skin because if not, then you you know go home crying after every patient you treat every day. So it's a very fine line, and it's a balance of maintaining that compassion and that level of humanity, but still you know that. That professional boundary as well. And it's, it's definitely a,
0: a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah but I, I do think, you know, there's a movement in the healthcare um, culture right now. Um, IHI has some, the Institute of Health, uh, I forget what the other I is, but they have a um, age-friendly community Group working right now to put these frameworks into hospitals that allow us to first start with an older adult. What's important to that person? You know, what, like you had mentioned, it might not be walking, you know, your whole loop outside. It might be able to get from one end of your home to the other and in and out of the bathroom um, or walking that dog. And just finding what those motivators are really help engage um the patient in the process of rehab and of what it is that we're doing. Cause then you can connect every treatment to your goal of, you know, getting home and getting in and out of the bathroom or whatever it is that you have. Um so it's just so important to look at what matters to the patient.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. And you know, one of the other things we, we talked a little bit about more of that acute stage in, in the hospital. But in the more chronic stages, one of the big pieces um, is education and um, you know, instruction in just a generally healthy lifestyle changes. One of the other kind of I feel like things that that isn't talked about a lot is many of those not what we call modifiable risk factors that put people at risk for stroke. So maybe um, hypertension, diabetes, um, uh, general um Unhealthy eating habits, physical inactivity, smoking, things like that, that are all, like I said, modifiable. Whatever those factors were that led to a stroke, unless you change those behaviors, they're still there post stroke. And so you still have that same risk. Um, and one of the biggest within that um, list is physical inactivity. I was at a conference recently and someone, Said the phrase that really stuck with me physical activity is the new smoking. And it's, mm. it really is, you know, research is coming out that lack of physical activity is so detrimental for so many aspects of our health. So much, yeah, so many aspects of our health. But particularly for patients that have had a stroke or a brain injury, um, it's that much more important that they get active and moving. And kind of what I was tying this back to is. I will often educate patients on how important it is to develop a good exercise routine. Right? Once they've obviously, they've done their um, PT, their OT, and they've, they've hit a baseline, if you will. And then the next focus is really just maintaining that endurance, that strength, that balance, et cetera. And if I say to somebody, okay, I need you, I think it's really important that we work on some cardiovascular endurance. So I need you to go walking for 30 minutes a day. And they're like, I hate walking. I don't want to walk. They're not going to stick with it. And but they may turn to me and be like, you know what? I do love to do. I love dancing. Great. Let's dance for thirty minutes a day. And that is more likely something that somebody's going to stick with. So it's. It, I feel like it's so important that the patient, like I said, is so involved as part of the team from the early stages all the way through. Um, to those more chronic stages, because if it's something that they don't care about and they're not invested in, that's not interesting to them, they're not going to stick with it. And that's not effective
0: in any way. Yeah. So for stroke prevention, you mentioned, um, you know, the physical activity. And I think the recommendation is what, three to four times a week, 40 minutes of moderate vigorous exercise. How does someone know if they're hitting that? Like what, what do you use as moderate, vigorous it's exercise? A
1: great. So really, it's a great question. And it's one I get asked a lot. Um, one of the big things coming out in the literature right now is that um, the one thing that people are not doing is hitting that moderate to vigorous level of exercise. And that's really what's the barrier. Um, to them getting to the optimal level of health. They may get there 30 to 40 minutes, three to four times a week, but it's not at that intensity they need to really challenge their body. Um, so I would recommend to anyone who is interested in starting a program to see a PT. Um, they can get you started on um, a very uh, specific exercise prescription that's appropriate for that person. And they'll use one of two things usually. Um, but they can go by uh, using heart rate and blood pressure. So they'll monitor their vitals, particularly heart rate, and they will um, do some testing to set kind of a target heart rate to reach. And then often patients will get, there's, you know, on, out on the market these days, I don't know the commercial products, but I think the Fitbit is a big one, or mm-hmm. I don't I don't know the names of... Um,
2: the Apple Watch looks, does a ton and... The um, Apple
1: Watch, yeah. I think so. Whatever for heart rate...
2: Polar still has a bunch of polar ones.
1: You know, whatever device they want to use is fine, but we will help set them up with a target heart rate to reach. And they have to work on maintaining that heart rate with whatever mode of activity they choose, as long as it's safe. So dancing, swimming, walking, biking, um, and, and staying at that target heart rate, um, There are certain medications that will alter your heart rate response during exercise. So for those patients, we'll use something called um, a BORG or um, a modified BORG scale um, or RPE, Rate of Perceived Exertion, where they'll rate on a scale. And if you've ever heard somebody say to you, on a scale of 0 to 10, how hard are you working? Um, They'll rate um, on a scale and we'll use a certain target on that scale, depending on what's most appropriate for them. But I, I do think that um, seeing a PT to get, get you started is one of the best ways to do that. So that way you're being safe but and and hitting that target that you need to for it to actually be effective. Yeah.
2: I will say where heart rate is concerned, um, technology has advanced so much in the last 10 years. I, you know, like I've been a runner for a long time and, you know, what you could do to track your heart rate 10 years ago is just changed significantly since then. I mean, and, and I'm an overachiever. We've talked about this a fair amount on this podcast is a problem I have, but, um, so because of brain injury stuff, I've had to like pull myself back from competing with other people, but the heart rate thing I have found has been a nice way to adjust the focus to competing with myself and has been a really positive thing. Like I just got a mixed fitness bike. It's like kind of like a Peloton and it, it doesn't have classes where you see what other people are doing because that would be a slippery slope for me but it does monitor your heart rate during every workout and for me that has been you know like such a game changer because i have something to achieve
1: <laughs> you know it's funny i think that comes back to when you were saying earlier that patients that have had a brain injury or stroke or really any kind of neurological injury there's this loss of of control and sense of self and i think small ways to gain that back really make a big difference. So like you're saying, that that gives you some sense of control to say, okay, I have a target, I know how to meet it, can I meet it? And it gives you something concrete to work with. And I think that is very, very helpful um, for people as they're they're going through that recovery process.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. That makes sense. And
0: so so to I'm curious to about... Point, um, Oh, go ahead, Erin. <laughs> I was just going to say, to get to the point of being able to do, you know, three to four sessions of 40 minutes um, of exercise a day, uh, that that's asking a lot for a lot of stroke survivors. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, um, you know, a lot of the injuries that we see from stroke physically are going to affect your balance? Um, You know, if you have hemiparesis and you don't have a side that's as strong, that's going to affect your balance. If you have um, vision or vestibular issues, it's going to affect your balance. So how do we get to that point of being able to exercise and prevent ourselves from having further strokes?
2: You just asked my question better than I could. (laughs) Ah, There we go.
1: Um, yeah, I, you know, it's balance is one of the biggest components of what I usually do when working with patients with, um, stroke and brain injury. Um, it, it, it's our, it's safety. Safety is our priority for everything, whether it's talking about developing an exercise program or just walking around your house. Um, so I think I try to work very closely with my patients and their families and develop a program that's very safe for them, specific to them. So if somebody does have a severe balance issue, which can be from a multitude of different things, um, finding an activity that is enjoyable for them and very safe for them. And that may mean just modifying the activity a little bit, and that's fine. So I think working closely with a professional who you can trust in um, collaborating with you to find something that works within again that realm of safety but also pushing for that the healthy lifestyle change is really important. Um, and for when it comes to, from my end of the spectrum, um, balance, you know, things that affect balance are so many different things. Um, I know you guys did a podcast, um, I'm not sure when it was, but with a vestibular specialist. Mm-hmm. So I know you um, talked a bit about that, but when it comes to our balance, there are three main systems that contribute to your balance. That bring it input. One is the vestibular system, like you had talked about. One is the visual system, and Aaron just mentioned. You know, patients with strokes can often have visual impairments, and the other is our somatosensory system, and that's our ability to perceive um, different sensations. So, whether it's touch, so the ability to feel your foot on the floor, right? That helps us be able to balance, or proprioception, and that's the ability to, um, to feel where your body is in space. So meaning if you stick your arm out in front of you and close your eyes, you can describe where your arm is in space. You can still feel it even though you're not looking at it. So those three systems contribute to your balance. Um, They provide all this input and information to your central nervous system. And then your central nervous system processes it in a variety of different ways and then sends out signals to your motor system to execute movement. And if there's a disruption anywhere along that chain, which there often is um, after a stroke, it can really affect your balance in a variety of different ways. So working closely with a PT who can help you help figure out where the breakdown is, right? Where is it because you're having vestibular issues? Is it actually a central processing issue? Is it a motor issue? and working um, once they diagnose where that breakdown is, working on specific activities to address that specific contributor to your balance impairment. Um, and then as you do that, you can develop some strategies, like I are saying, to modify certain activities to make them a little safer, even if you have a balance impairment. And I've, like I said, done a variety of very interesting and creative um, interventions to try to, um, to modify things so that way the patients can still enjoy what they want to do and still get those exercise benefits, but also keeping them very safe at the same time.
0: Yeah, I interestingly just met a patient um, in the past few weeks who was very, very motivated to be physically active, unfortunately had left side hemiparesis and neglect, so didn't really understand that his left side existed. So he was very motivated to get up and walk, but his body was not. Um, So very clearly a high fall risk. Um, And I know a lot of stroke survivors are probably um, dealing with similar issues. So can we speak a little bit more to the fall risk with this and trying to be safe?
1: Yeah. So like I was saying, there's this whole, our balance system in general has all this input that comes in. Um, The brain and the central nervous system processes it, and then our motor system, our muscles, execute the plan that our brain develops. And there can be breakdown anywhere along that way. So if we talk about the three systems that are providing our input for balance... Um, if it is a vestibular issue, I won't get into too much detail because I know you had a vestibular specialist who covered a lot of that, but there are a variety of treatments and techniques that um, we can use to address different vestibular issues. Um, when it comes to vision, I've worked very closely in the past with neurooptometrists and neuroophthalmologists. ophthalmologists um, We can, um, in collaboration with them... They can prescribe certain types of glasses. I don't know if you guys are familiar with something called a prism glass, prism glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, they may have different types of glasses that they can use, or we can teach certain types of strategies. So if somebody has neglect, um, there are a variety of different strategies we can teach to compensate for that. Um, and then in, uh, from the somatosensory end, there are different exercises and activities that we can do to either what we call provide a restorative intervention, so try to recover some of the um, information that's lost there, or a compensatory strategy. So basically, um, teaching ways to work around the fact that you have that loss. So an example of this would be over time. Let's say somebody is um, develops blindness at some point in their life. Right, they didn't have it as a child, but they, they are blind. Um, Over time, their brain and their body will compensate by using more and more input from those other systems. So it will rely more heavily on the vestibular system and on the somatosensory system. And your brain will rewire to essentially to manage for that. Um, So depending on if we're trying to do a restorative intervention or a compensatory intervention, we can find different strategies to help patients. work around those balance issues. And that would, in turn, help reduce that risk of falls. Um, So one of the um, statistics that is always very interesting to me is, I I believe, up to 75% of patients that have had a stroke will fall within their first year.
0: Wow. Um, How
1: terrifying. Yeah. which Which is scary. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a fall that in you know, is big and dramatic and has an injury associated with it Maybe be um, something less intense. But um, falls are a big, a big factor um, and something that we spend a lot of time on the PT and OT end of things talking about fall prevention. Um, it's so crucial. And so, like I said, some of that might be working on balance and strategies to improve the balance or compensate for certain types of information that is lost that is contributing to the balance impairment. Uh, We can also do a lot of patient and family education on strategies such as how they set up their home. PTs and OTs are uh, very well-versed and trained in appropriate environmental setup. So we can give different techniques such as maybe, um, you know, adding if we find out that the patient's falling frequently at night, maybe adding nightlights to their hallway or their bathroom or if they're tripping over a rug, moving a rug, or the furniture, or removing throw rugs. Um, So one of the, I guess, cool things about everything going virtual these days is it's been a lot easier with the increased access to telehealth to be able to do virtual home assessments with patients. So instead of them just kind of telling us as best they can what their home is set up like or coming with pictures, Um, we've had family members that can actually take their camera and walk us around the house, and we can then use that to give recommendations um, to help more appropriately set up the home and reduce that risk of falls from that end of things. Um, So there's a variety of different ways we we can come at it, but I, I always recommend that if somebody has had a fall and or believe that they're at risk for having a fall, to seek um, assistance and guidance so that way they can reduce that risk. Um, And not just from the physical standpoint of things or environmental setup, but sometimes it's the the emotional and behavioral piece. I have one patient in particular that's um, always stood out in my mind that was just always so, so, so terrified of falling. And because of that, He actually had a lot of physical behaviors that put him at higher risk for falling because he was so hesitant. Um, And so I worked very closely with the neuropsychologist that he was seeing to come at it from both the cognitive and behavioral and emotional end, um, her point of view, and then me from the physical point of view to really target the issue um, and make sure that we were addressing it, not just because I could improve his balance all he wanted, but if he wasn't confident in that balance, and didn't feel safe, it wasn't going to really make a big difference. Hmm.
2: Balance, it seems to me, I mean, I think this is true for many arenas when it comes to brain injury, but balance to me seems like one of those spaces where it's really important to be realistic about your limitations. Um, You know, I have a couple lingering vestibular issues. And I've, you know, like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I don't know that this will ever change in my life. It's something that I do have to deal with. So let's be real about them. And, you know, like, let's, skip burpees for the rest of my life. (laughs) You know, like let's find the things that trigger it. I just happen to not like burpees too, as most, um, but, but, but like, let's be real about this. If this is going to trigger something in me, then like, let's find a workaround. Let's find a different exercise that is going to achieve what I need to achieve in a workout, but you know, like not send me spinning. So I, I think that, you know, changing your, the space around you is one of those things too. That's an easy fix to make, just like skipping burpees. Like that's an easy fix, you know, find a way to make your environment work for you within your limitations, but be real with yourself about what they are. So, yeah. And it doesn't always I mean it's forever. Always, yeah. Like, that's Be yeah, real with 100%. where you are in that day, in that moment, whatever it is, but but try and define what the limitation is for your own safety. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I agree, Aaron, that nothing is forever. In my opinion, like things are always changing, including in your, in the body. So I think there's always, um, kind of, I, and I often encourage people to like, if you feel like things are improving and getting better, you can start to test the waters a little bit and that's okay to do, you know, within reason. Um, I, I had another patient who I worked with for a couple of years. who's near and dear to my heart. And, um, had a lot of, a lot of balance challenges, um, really, really struggled with maintaining balance. Um, but she had this goal of going back to snowboarding and I, you know, I'm sure many PTs, if they watched her walking would be gripping the walls going, Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know, um, but but she did it. She, she walked, even if it didn't, you know, quote unquote, look like, you know, what it used to look like. But anywho, so she had this goal and she um, worked very closely with um, some therapists and adaptive equipment companies and whatnot. And if if I were to show you a video of her snowboarding now, you would never know that she had the brain in- injury that she did. And That's awesome. Um, she kept pushing, you know, she always, she, she kept within reason, you know, I think she never gave up. And I think it's so important to always keep in mind that, like you said, there's always room for some kind of improvement. And it even if you hit a plateau, you know, maybe finding a different way to go about doing things or you know, changing your expectations a bit, it. maybe a cognitive change, uh maybe not cognitive change, um, you know, a shift in your mindset, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: One of our first interviews ever on this podcast. And if you're listening and you have not listened to this episode, please go listen to the Chris Dietrich episode. Um He was a traumatic brain injury survivor, um, and he has this mantra and it is just move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that is can speak to all of us. And, And it speaks to that sort of like reasonable goal piece of this, too, is like just a little bit forward, an inch, a centimeter, you know, depending on your, how you measure, (laughs) but but like whatever small amount makes a difference. And Chris is an inspiration. You know, like if you follow him on Instagram, he's constantly posting videos of himself. He has gait and movement issues. He posts pretty much a video every day of him walking and he lives in Thailand too. So it's like him, you know, like he puts down his phone, in the middle of the street in Thailand and has video of himself walking, you know, like people and, you know, stopping to watch him do what he's doing, but that's his way of like marking his progress every day is like, he's just doing his exercise and moving forward. And I think that's just like, a he, he is an inspiration. Like the fact that he is just, you know, this many years out still chipping away at his goals is pretty amazing. So
1: I think being, like I said, being realistic is so important. I actually I had a, a conversation with my father-in-law yesterday, and he is recovering from, um, from an injury, and he was like, "I cannot believe like how much time it takes. Like, I have to do my exercises in the morning when I get up, and I have to go to PT." And and I've often encourage, you know, explain to patients that this recovery is your full time job right now, and you know, it's okay to dedicate that amount of time to yourself. I think as a society, we tend to not be so used to taking care of ourselves so much, but, um, you know, finding that balance of mental understanding that you need to, you need to, you know, put yourself first and take care of yourself. And over time, it does take less and less in time, I think of constructive care, um, in that sense. But, um, Never giving up on yourself, I think, is so important. Like you are saying, he just found his rhythm and continues to do it mm-hmm. every day. Yeah, yeah, it's and pretty awesome.
0: I think we'd be remiss to not mention another modifiable risk factor. We've definitely spoken to the physical um, and being more active and how that's going to help you hopefully not have another stroke or not have a stroke at all to begin with. But another big modifiable risk factor is diet. Um what are some things that you would teach about um when it comes to diet both pre and post stroke
1: Yeah so um one of the things I'll often um encourage my students to is we we know our limits um, but we also have to make sure that we're providing education to our patient as a whole person So as PTs um, I'm not 100% sure for OTs and speech language pathologists practice acts but Um, We can kind of educate on general healthy lifestyle habits, um, but it's not within our realm to give very specific dietary um, instructions. So I've often referred people to nutritionists and registered dietitians to make sure if they need more specific um, instructions. However, the general research does show that I believe it's the Mediterranean diet is the most effective. Um, And my my thought process is just kind of coming back to the basics, right? Staying hydrated, lots of fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, and trying to find um, a way to incorporate those most basic nutritional pieces into your everyday life. Um, Not to say, you know, you can never have something or never have that cookie, never have this. I think that's unrealistic. I think people um, tend to get caught up in this diet culture, um, which I am very much a anti anti advocate. I'm not a fan of the yeah. intense diet culture. I'm more a fan of just making general lifestyle habit changes, um, where you're you're eating natural foods and eating is healthy. Um, one of the that frustrates me personally is when people are like but i'm drinking diet soda so oh. you know diet soda has to be better right No. It's, and i think those gimmicks of like you know, low fat this and diet this it's i'd rather you go have water or squeeze out some orange from a front the orange juice from a fresh orange you know um the more natural the better in my opinion mm-hmm. So yeah, without being able to give too much direct um, instructions, my advice is just, like I said, that the general um, wellness approach as much as possible. And if they feel like they are more, in, they need more concrete instructions with some people, like I said, need that control, that sense of they need something very specific outlined for me, then I can stick with it. I think it's very appropriate to work with um, a registered dietitian or nutritionist in that sense.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of the common sense things that we're talking about. Like, you know, if you Mm -hmm. eat pizza, chips, drink soda, smoke, and consist on just beer, you're not going to be feeling very well. So, you know, all those things in, you know, here and there modifiable, maybe Um, smoking, I would never say you should do. Um, But it's that common sense. Like if you if you know it's bad for you, it, it probably is. Listen to that.
1: Or if, if not only if you know it's bad, but if it doesn't make you feel good
0: afterwards,
1: Uh it's probably not a good thing to
2: have. Mm -hmm. Um, Use your brains, brain injured friends. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) I agree.
2: Well, Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. I think that, um, you know, like, Like I said earlier, Aaron and I, like we feel like we are sort of learning as we go, especially in terms of stroke. So this has been um, really helpful. And I think there are a lot of sort of um, ripple effects that can be caused by stroke that, um, yeah, are just either not well known by other brain injury survivors or um, don't get talked about as much because they seem like they're very straightforward so it's nice to be able to touch on some of these with you
1: so thank yeah, you i am a huge advocate of just educating as much as possible the more you know the better off you are and we it can agree. be very very over <laughs> i know it can be you know very overwhelming to take in a lot of information so i think if anyone takes anything away from stroke prevention education it's just like we we're saying do things that make you feel good. Get moving, eat well, be high, stay hydrated. Those ba- the basics. I'm all about always coming back to the basics.
2: Well, if you are looking to hear more from Dr. Tucker, please check her out on Instagram at jtuck, T-U-C-K, D-P-T. Um, and if you have any further questions for her, you can reach out directly there or feel free to email us on the website. We're always happy to pass on questions or get you guys in touch. Um, And thank you to our listeners. I think we don't say it enough. We say it as much as we can, but probably not enough. Thank you always for joining us during these episodes. It means a lot to us that you are here listening. And um, this is Mariah and Aaron signing off of the Making Headway podcast. We will talk to you all next week. Hey, everyone. In case you're wondering what Aaron and I do for a living, it's not podcasting. I work in marketing. Aaron's a nurse. And this is just a side project that we love.
0: We really do enjoy doing this and we've enjoyed being part of the community and building up a group of listeners. You guys probably don't even realize how much you help us out uh, just by supporting us. If you were looking to do a little bit extra, uh, we would love to have your ratings on Apple or whichever podcasting service that you use.
2: Or if you hear us talk about a product on the podcast, we do include those links to Amazon in our show notes on our website Your purchase, after you click on the link, just gives us a tiny little kickback. Nothing much, but it helps us pay our bills.
0: And if you are thinking, well, this isn't enough, we want to do a little bit more, on our website at www.makingheadwaypodcast.com, we have a donation page. Any proceeds we receive, we give 10% to our favorite brain injury nonprofit of the moment. So if you are looking to do a little bit more, that would be a great way to support us. Again, we appreciate you guys oh so much.
2: Thanks so much for your time and your ongoing support. We love our listeners and we'll talk
1: to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your
0: friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute
1: for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stoutheart Studios. Sunrises across the ocean.